RPC Radio. Hello, you're listening to Insurance Covered. Welcome to the podcast that covers anything and everything to do with insurance. Coming up in this episode. Insurance is complicated. It's a lot harder to understand than banking, I'd say. There's a lot more moving parts in an insurer than than there are in in a bank. So remember what insurance is actually for, what it's doing for the economy, that it's pooling risks, it's paying people retirement income, and it's making long-term investments in the UK and elsewhere. My name is Peter Mansfield. I'm a partner in the law firm RPC, and in each episode, I'm joined by a guest, and we discuss an aspect of the wonderful world of insurance. And this week, we have Alan Shepherd, and we're going to discuss the regulation of insurance. Alan's background is in maths, with a PhD from Oxford on topological methods for calculating Donaldson invariance of the complex projective plane, which is most definitely not what we're going to be discussing today. In 1994, Alan began his first stint at the Bank of England, during which time he rose to be head of risk management. In 2014, he left to join Aviva, where he stayed for just over a year before returning for his second stint at the bank, this time as head of insurance policy at the Prudential Regulation Authority, or the PRA. And for the last couple of years, he has been a senior advisor at the PRA, specialising in insurance regulation, which is what we're going to discuss today. So, Alan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you, Peter. It's a pleasure to be here. And um, as mentioned, you had a, a short spell at Aviva. Um, was that your first experience of, of insurance? And, and if so, what was it that provoked that move? Uh, yes, it was. Well, professionally, at least, uh, my first experience of insurance. So this was in uh, 2013. The bank had just taken on insurance re- regulation as part of the post-crisis reorganization of the bank uh, and the Financial Services Authority. Uh, and insurance was a completely new area to the Bank of England side of the new organization. So I was talking to my boss at the time, Paul Fisher, about what to do next. And he said, well, it would be good for you. And it would certainly be good for this new organization if you went to an insurer for a while and learned something about this area, which is was new to us on the central banking side. And so that's what I did, always with a view to coming back after a, a year or two. And uh, I mean, this episode um, is actually going to be the first in a two-parter on regulation and compliance. Uh, And the next episode is with an insurer uh, talking about compliance. Um, But this one is obviously all about regulation. Um, And as you mentioned, you're now at the the Prudential Regulation Authority, the the PRA. Um, So uh, first of all, let's get it clear. What is the relationship between the PRA and the Bank of England? Um, so the PRA is part of the Bank of England. Uh, it's the it's the part responsible for overseeing financial institutions, including insurers. But it's not a separate legal entity. It was created when the FSA was split in two, uh, and the PRA part of that merged with the Bank of England. In practice, it does have a reasonably separate identity because it has very specific responsibilities and, and objectives defined by Parliament. But as I say, legally, one organisation uh, and staff move freely between the PRA and other parts of the bank. And um, let's start with a series of factual questions, really, about the PRA and, and what it does. So, first of all, it obviously supervises insurance companies. Uh, does it also supervise the uh, of Lloyds of London? Does it supervise Lloyds? 
Um, yes. So basically anyone writing insurance contracts in the UK needs to be authorised and regulated by the PRA. So that would include Lloyds of London. And also presumably any foreign insurers who, who trade in the UK and, and write business in the UK. Uh, yes. Yeah. Branches of non-UK firms, if they are if they are affecting insurance contracts, writing insurance policies here, uh, then they need to be authorised and, and regulated by us. And... In terms of what the PRA actually supervises, kind of, how would you describe the focus of, of the PRA's supervision? Well, at the very highest level, we're responsible for the safety and soundness of the firms that we supervise, uh, which means their ability to pay customers what they owe them uh, through thick and thin. And there are several aspects to that. Um, obviously, financial. Uh, do firms have enough reserves to cover what they expect to pay out on insurance policies? And do they have enough on top of that uh, which we call the firm's capital, so they can keep paying those claims, even if they're hard and expected. Second aspect uh, is risk management capability. Uh, so does the firm actually have the systems, the personnel, the management to identify the risks it's exposed to? Uh, and third, uh, liquidity and operational risks. Uh, it's not much good having enough money to pay claims if that money's all tied up in investments that can't be readily sold and turned into cash. In essence, therefore, it's the financial side of an insurer's business, checking that they're, they've got the money they need, they've got the financial security they need, checking they've got the processes in place to protect the financial position of each insurer. That, that That's effectively it, is it? Yes, yes, yeah, good way of putting it, yeah. Um, and there's another regulator for insurers, the, the Financial Conduct Authority, the FCA, and, and you already mentioned the fact that when this was all formed uh, 10 years or so, then uh, uh, it, it, was, it was previously the FSA, which was split into two. So presumably the FCA is the other, the other bit. So you have the PRA doing the money side of things and the FCA doing, well, what, what, what is it that they do? So our focus at the PRA is, uh, as you were saying, to ensure that insurers have the financial wherewithal to meet their obligations. So if you like, we deal with the can't pay side of the equation, <laughs> PRA. The FCA, the Financial Conduct Authority, seeks to ensure that customers are treated fairly in their dealings with insurers. Now, this is not as it's tempting to say they deal with the won't pay side of the equation. It's not really as simple as that. It's rather, it's about ensuring that policies are fair value and give people the protection that they're actually looking for. Um, and in this division of responsibilities, between the PRA and the FCA occurred on, on the 1st of April, unfortunately, uh, the 1st of April 2013, um, which means that the PRA has just celebrated its 10th birthday. So happy birthday, Prudential Regulation Authority. Um, before that, we've mentioned the FSA, Financial Services Authority. How were insurers regulated before that? And, and, and what was it that provoked the change? Uh, so first, thank you for the birthday wishes. Anytime. Looking forward to the cake later. I, I, I'll, I'll sing to you when this podcast is finished, Alan. <laughs> well, looking forward to that even more. Um, so, <laughs> as I mentioned before, until 2013, the FSA was the single regulator of conduct and prudential standards. Um, whilst the Bank of England was responsible for monetary stability, for keeping inflation close to target, uh, and for financial stability. That's the stability of the overall supply of financial services. And... I mean, if you'll indulge me, 
and go back even further. Yeah. Before 1997, which is when the FSA was created by Gordon Brown and Ed Balls, uh, before that, the Bank of England actually did banking supervision itself and, and had done, um, well, on a statutory basis since the early 1970s and on an informal basis uh, for long before that. But we never regulated insurers. That was done by the Treasury um, up till 97 and before that by the Department for Trade and Industry, the old, the old Board of Trade. So the FSA was created in 97. And then, so let's fast forward. The creation of the PRA was a response to the 2008 great financial crisis across the world. Um, and there were, there were two drivers of the change. Um, so in 2008, there were three bodies involved in the rescue of the British banks, the Treasury, the Bank of England, and the third body was the FSA itself, the regulator of the individual banks. Uh, and these three bodies were known collectively uh, as the tripartite authorities. Now, you can imagine that was a coordination challenge during a pretty fraught time. So one driver of the creation of the PRA was to bring responsibility for individual banks and insurers and responsibility for the financial system as a whole together in one place in the Bank of England. And the second, I think equally important, was to separate prudential and conduct regulation because of the way the latter can really dominate senior management attention day to day. Um, there are stories about the way banks and insurers conduct themselves and act towards uh, consumers in the press all the time. So the conduct just does tend to dominate limited management bandwidth. So, so how does the PRA go about its business? Um, I, I guess I've got three questions on this. Um, so first of all, how does it go about setting the rules? And, and is even is even rule the right way to describe it? Kind of, is there a book that insurers must follow, a kind of a series of diktats kind of from the PRA that insurers must follow? Well, it's complicated. So, so yes, there is a rule book. Um, but there's also um, a lot still in legislation, in statute. Uh, uh, and that would originally have been EU legislation, which applied directly um, and has now been copied across onto the UK statute book as part of the process of extricating ourselves from the EU. But as well as rules and legislation, uh, there are things called expectations, which are a kind of series of interpretations or guidance on uh, here's what the rules say, but what do they mean? Uh, what do we expect you to do as a result? Uh, now, the good news is that over time, we will bring not all of that, but a lot of that together into one place mm -hmm. in a single rule book. So the things that have been brought over into, from EU law into UK law, as much as possible, that will be brought into a single rule book. I think there'll still be a lot of space, though, for for expectations uh, and guidance. And a second, how does the PRA go about the the day-to-day -day physical process of supervising insurers and i guess you know does it distinguish between life insurers on the on one hand and other insurers on the other because obviously they're, they're very different financial models i imagine yes so there's a certain framework which is common to both of them and then there are specific issues which are very different uh, across the two sectors the, the life and the general insurance sectors so our overall approach is a risk-based one starts from an assessment of how much risk to the objectives of safety and soundness of firms and policyholder protection each firm poses. That's a combination of the state of the firm as it currently is in uh, and the impact that a failure of that firm would have. 
So factors like its, its sheer size, its interconnectedness with other firms and other parts of the financial system, its substitutability. Does it provide some financial services, some particular policies that very few others or no others do? You know, are they the only supplier of insurance to beekeepers, for example? Yeah. And, and the final important factor is, is how important is continuity of cover? Now, would it matter if you had to spend a few weeks replacing your policy? If you're a beekeeper, probably not so much. But if it's your car insurance, um, absolutely critical yeah. that you don't have any gap. Um, so we use all of that to divide firms into categories. And the higher the category the firm is in, the more intensive the supervision. What do we actually do? So we have a program of what we call core assurance activities for each firm. They're designed to allow us to assess the financial and non-financial resources, you know, quality of risk management, governance, that kind of thing that, that the firm has. Uh, and it, whether it's adequate or not, is it is it above the minimum standards? Uh, and that's a combination of desk-based analysis of material that we've had reported to us by the firm, site visits, uh, meetings with senior management and boards, and scrutiny of the financial models and the innards of those that the firms are using, and of large individual transactions, uh, acquisition of a book of pensions or a, or a merger. We also do what we call horizontal supervision. So we look at themes and risks that are common to multiple firms and communicate the conclusions of that analysis to the affected firms. So a couple of examples. So something we, we did last year on the general insurance side was to look at claims inflation. So, uh, yeah, inflation has, has reared its ugly head again. Yeah, yeah. But uh, particularly, for example, motor insurers were finding that they were suffering very large increases in the amount they had to pay out in individual claims through a combination of general price rises, but also supply chain disruption which meant that people were spending, it was taking a lot longer to repair cars, waiting for parts. People were spending a lot longer, therefore, in courtesy cars. And they hadn't anticipated this at the time of, of setting the premiums for those policies. Mm. Um, so uh, we did some thematic work on that and then communicated that to all the affected firms. Um, and uh, the, the third issue really is we've discussed um, kind of setting the rules. We've discussed supervising the rules and kind of making sure that, that insurers do what they say they're doing. But if the insurers are not doing what they say they're doing or are not doing what they should be doing, um, what powers does the PRA have to enforce compliance? So we do have various powers which can stop firms paying dividends, for example, if they are running short of capital. Um, we can suspend or we can cancel permission to write new business if we want a firm to concentrate on being able to look after its existing policyholders. Um, and we can take disciplinary action against individuals, uh, individual senior managers, uh, if they're breaching our rules and their responsibilities. But all of these enforcement powers are, they're a last resort. They are used, but they're only used infrequently. The existence of them allows us to work with firms to, to devise and implement, for example, financial recovery plans. Let's start to consider some, some sort of bigger issues in, in a little bit more detail. And um, solvency two. Now, that's a phrase that People, I often hear people dropping that into a, a conversation in the, in the belief that everyone knows what they're talking about. But um, I have a sneaking suspicion that most people don't really know what Solvency 2 is, what it does, what it aims to achieve, whether there was ever a Solvency 1, um, and so on and so forth. So please could you talk us through Solvency 2? What is it? It's a comprehensive regime for regulation of insurers uh, that was agreed between EU member states in the last decade, and it went live in 2016. 
you're right, it, uh, it did indeed replace the much simpler and looser Solvency 1, as the name suggests. Solvency 1 just set certain minimum standards, uh, and member states could build on those. Solvency 2, by contrast, is a, a comprehensive common standard, so EU regulators can neither go below nor above it. Uh, in the UK, it applies to all but the very smallest insurers, and it's got three pillars. First pillar, financial requirements, uh, which is you know, rules about how firms calculate how much money to hold against claims uh, and how much extra hold to hold as a buffer. Second pillar is about how firms run certain aspects of their business. So it sets standards for risk management, uh, for example, and for governance. And it also sets out the circumstances in which supervisors can intervene. Uh, now, I think it's important to understand those two pillars interact. We don't set financial requirements and then put our feet up, uh, assuming that that will be enough to cover all eventualities. In a sense, financial requirements are there to buy time for successful interventions, so that should a firm cease to be viable because its, it's business model you know, ceases to work yeah. because of changes in its certain circumstance, it, it can be wound up in a safe way. Okay. It doesn't damage policyholders, doesn't damage other firms, uh, but you need a certain cushion of financial resources to give you enough time to do that safely. Um, and the third pillar is, is reporting, reporting to regulators and, and disclosure to the public of information about the firm. And that enables us to, to supervise more effectively, identify problems early. And what does all this mean practically? So we discussed it at a high level and, and sort of the principles kind of behind uh, the regulation and, and the prudential requirements. But let's say, this, this will involve a suspension of disbelief here, but uh, let, let's say that I, I, am, I am an insurer um, with reserves totaling £100 million let's say. So So all of my total reserves and all of my claims total £100 million. How much money do I need to ring fence in order to keep the PRA happy? Well, it depends. <laughs> I, I somehow knew you were going to say that. <laughs> I'm not going to give you a number. Solvency 2 is risk, the, the serious point, Solvency 2 is a risk-sensitive regime. So, so that amount of extra money or capital, as we call it, that an insurer has to hold, it will totally depend on how much risk they're taking and and crucially actually how concentrated or diversified their risks are now you you and i listeners will know diversification is absolutely central to insurance and the whole point about insurance is that you take risks from many individuals mm. and you pull them together and whilst they are unpredictable at the level of the individual they're a lot more predictable when you have a large pool of them yeah but diversification that firms can achieve still varies, uh, and there's a limit to how much they can achieve. It depends on the range of customers that the firm can attract. Um, and this is one of the big reasons for the existence of, of insurance for insurers, or reinsurance. Yeah. But reinsurance allows even greater pooling of risk, and it might be specialist, you know, maximize the benefit of the law of large numbers to by bringing together you know, the, the, all the beekeeping risk. <laughs> Wow, that would that would be big numbers. Yeah, be beekeeper-y. <laughs> um, I mean, you asked about what can they do with the capital. I mean, two quite different answers to that. One is there are no restrictions, broadly speaking, no restrictions on what investments an insurer can make, which is actually a, a, a change brought in by Solvency Two. Before that, there were there were some quite uh, specific rules about investments. But another thing is, and the second answer is, that extra, that buffer against unexpected losses is not a separate pot of money. In fact, capital isn't really an asset at all. It's a liability. Capital is a liability that you don't have to pay back, and therefore you can, if you can't pay it back, and therefore 
you can afford to lose that much and still pay back everything that you do have to pay back, like your actual debt and most importantly, claims on policies. And so there isn't a separate pot of money called capital. There's just okay. the capital rules say the total that you have to be worth in excess of what you expect to pay out on debt and, and policies uh, has to be at a certain level. So, so can I just clarify something for, for my own understanding? So um, an insurance company, loads and loads of premiums go in to the insurance company and a lot of that has to pay you know, property, employees, et cetera, et cetera. So expenses and overheads, whatever. Everything that's left, is that what you're referring to as capital or is capital a bit more distinct than that? The capital is the difference between what all the insurance assets are worth and what its liabilities are worth. Fine. Okay. And the money comes in, as you say, in the form of premium, but also in the form of equity. Yes. Yes. Which has been raised by the firm. And it's that that and it's the equity that the firm can afford to lose without failing to pay its policies. Yeah. Okay. That's helpful. But one thing that I hear, whether it's connected to solvency too or, or, or otherwise, is that somehow insurers are prevented from investing in, for example, green technology on the basis that it's too risky. Now, to what extent is that observation justified? And if insurers are being prevented from investing in green technology in that way, is, is there anything which can be done about that? There is something in it, actually. And it is something that we're trying to address in, in reforms that we're considering at the moment. And it's not so much that, so it's not at all that investment in green technology is more risky. It's that it, it is harder to say how risky it is Okay. And and Solvency 2 doesn't handle that so well because it relies heavily on modeling, as all insurance does. And that modeling and the validation of that modeling relies heavily on historical data. So if you're looking at investment in innovative green technology, there will often be very little track record. There will be very little data on the historic performance of an investment like that. Uh, and so it may be at a disadvantage in an approach which models financial risks based on a lot of historic data. So we're trying to address that by looking at other ways you can assess the riskiness of innovative projects uh, which have limited data. So scenario analysis would be one example. By the same token, of course, the historic performance of carbon-intensive investments will often flatter those investments and won't show how exposed they are now to changes in regulation, you know, energy efficiency standards for offices or, or, or societal change, lower demand for, for meat and dairy uh, would be an example of that. Yeah, uh, things that we generally call transition risk—the risk that uh, companies' business models become less viable because of changes necessary for the transition to net zero. Okay, so simply they have both sides of the equation. Something that's new doesn't have past information, but because the world is changing, something that does have past information—that information may no longer be accurate looking forwards. In other words, yes. Hence the importance of augmenting or replacing historical data analysis with this forward-looking risk management-like scenario analysis. Okay. Just as a, a general comment, it, 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 as a regulatory body, obviously regulatory bodies don't necessarily produce anything. All they can do is influence and push. Um, but is there anything else that the PRA can do to fight climate change, would you say? So we're doing a lot of work with firms to help them identify and manage the financial risks that climate change creates, uh, which is squarely within our, our remit and, and necessary for achieving our objectives. Uh, and insurers have really been at the forefront of this, um, particularly property and casualty insurers. They're clearly directly affected by physical climate risk, by 
for example, changes in the frequency and severity of windstorms. But as we were saying a moment ago, insurers, particularly life insurers with their long-term investments, can and, and are exposed to transition risk. Um, and we are working with them to initially just identify uh, those exposures and where they are across the system. Uh, and indeed, last year, the Bank of the PRA uh, ran a system-wide test, which we called a, a climate exploratory scenario. And one of the aims of that was to get a better understanding of, of where the exposure to transition risk lies across the system and, and, and how significant it is, which is obviously a first step in addressing it. And, and presumably, the fact that you know, Brexit has taken place, we're no longer part of the EU, actually, we're no longer bound by sovereignty too in quite the same way that, that we would have been when we were members of the EU. So, so do, does that give us greater freedom to change things, change the rules in which we apply and also the way in which we apply them? Um, it does, and, it, and it's happening. Uh, the funny thing is, actually, that sovereignty too is very closely based on the previous UK regime. Right. That was our version of sovereignty one, if you like. And the UK played a big part in devising solvency two. So it already fits the UK insurance sector pretty well. And we're not seeking to change anything about the sort of the basic way in which it works, that structure that I was talking about earlier. But as with anything negotiated amongst 28 member states, uh, there were compromises. And we've been reviewing the detail of the regulation with the government. And the government announced in November a package of changes to the rules and to the way that uh, the PRAs will supervise firms that tailor the regime more closely to the needs of the UK economy uh, and meet the government's objectives for protection of policyholders, for investment in the UK and for uh, sort of competitiveness of the UK insurance sector. Uh, those changes will be rolled out over the coming months. I think what's perhaps even more important is that in future we'll be able to make rules in a different way. Uh, and this will be under something called the future regulatory framework. And that will be a way of making rules which can and will work well in a single country. Uh, and doesn't need these sort of structures that are essential when we were in the EU. And those rules then can be more agile, uh, better able to respond to emerging risks. And so I think that's what we'll see over, over coming years, as, for example, as a, as a new market emerges like insurance against cybercrime, losses from cybercrime. We, uh, we can adapt our rules more rapidly through the rulemaking process rather than having to go through legislation. But presumably, in terms of regulation, there are merits in having consistency in regulation globally, not, not just the EU, but, but globally. And therefore, yes, we can tweak the regulatory system to, to benefit the UK, but it really is no more than adjusting at the edges rather than changing anything significant. Is, is that an accurate representation? Yes, I think that's fair. I mean, so the word we use is tailoring. So international standards are very important. They're not as obviously important for insurance as banking, but actually insurance is a lot more international than you might think. Uh, a lot of cross-border business in wholesale insurance. A lot of the big players in the London wholesale market are, are branches of non-UK firms. And the reinsurance we talked about earlier moves risks around the world. So yeah, it's very important that, that that international business is happening for a good reason, that it's allowing greater diversification, for example, and so there are gains from trade. And it's not simply seeking out the lowest standards uh, for particular kind of risks. Exactly. Yeah, exactly. So we, we in the UK have, you know, been a very strong proponent of minimum international standards in both banking and insurance and uh, continue to work closely with other regulators through uh, international bodies to develop and then implement international standards to avoid that kind of shifting of things around the world just to seek out the easiest treatment. Exactly. 
And we're coming to the end of our conversation, um, but I just want to ask, is there a possibility that insurers are over-regulated? I mean, when a bank fails, I can see that it potentially causes a, a systemic risk, that there's a, you know, a potential failure in confidence uh, in one bank, may lead to a loss of confidence in another bank. Um, but the same thing doesn't seem to happen with insurance. If one insurer is in trouble, it doesn't affect the sector as a whole. So, in other words, we don't see insurance crises in the same way that we see banking crises. Now, that could be used to argue that regulators are perhaps being too cautious, too prudent with insurers, and therefore, actually, insurers should be slightly lighter regulated so that they can actually experiment and explore and innovate a bit more than a heavily regulated industry can do. I think, I think the case for some regulation of insurers is absolutely clear. Um, because they supply critical economic services, uh, you know, pooling of risks, retirement income, long-term investment, yeah. withdrawal of cover could have very material impact, uh, not just on individual policyholders, but on the economy more generally. So there are certain insurance policies that you have to have in order to be able to run a business or, or drive a car. Yes. Uh, and continuity of cover is, is essential there. But you're right, there's less likelihood of contagion uh, insurers are less interconnected with the rest of the financial system than the banks are. And in response, the standards to which insurers are held financially are lower okay. uh, than those to which we hold the biggest banks, uh, whose failure would have a bigger impact. Uh, now, of course, you'd expect me to say, of course, we regulate to exactly the right standard. <laughs> I wouldn't want you to do yourself out of a job, Alan. <laughs> there is what well, we want there to be firms you know we like we like supervising firms we want we want a large industry to regulate but there is a natural tension you know for the firms regulation is a constraint regulators as people pro probably rather not have a major failure on their watch and that's why the accountability that regulator is really important uh yeah that um that we're accountable to parliament parliament sets our objectives uh and we're accountable to the wider public by information we publish on our performance and to conclude, Alan, um, kind of based on your experience as a regulator of insurers, what bit of advice would you give to someone who wants to get into regulation as a career, either as a regulator, uh, so someone in your sort of role, or in in kind of the compliance department of, of a big insurer? What, what bit of advice would you give them? Insurance is complicated. It's a lot harder to understand than banking, I'd say. There's a lot more moving parts in an insurer than, than there are in, in a bank, which is a relatively simple creature. And it's easy, therefore, to get lost in the technicalities. But the hard questions that arise in the technicalities, they get a little less hard if you understand and remember the ultimate purpose that you're working towards and use that as a kind of lodestar. So remember what insurance is actually for, what it's doing for the economy, that it's pooling risks, it's paying people's retirement income, uh, and it's making long-term investments in the UK and elsewhere. Thank you, Alan. That was wonderful. Thank you so much for your time. RPC Radio. Radio. Thank you so much for listening to Insurance Covered, which is an RPC production made possible by Joe Burgess and Mary Mitchell. If you enjoyed this podcast, you will also love our other podcasts, Taxing Matters and Money Covered. Plus, The Fix, which is co-hosted by my colleague Kelly Thompson. If you want to be a guest on Insurance Covered, please email me at peter.mansfield at rpc.co.uk. Thank you, and I hope you have a great day.